You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. A lot of my research does focus on the labor of making media. Later in the program, Big Talk producer Michael Glab speaks with IU Cinema director Alicia Kosma. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half an hour, WFHB Sports correspondent Anyi Afoako provides a rundown on local, state, and global news stories in the WFHB Sports News Briefing. More following today's feature, but first, your headlines. At the Monroe County Commissioner's Meeting on June 29th, President Julie Thomas read a statement on behalf of the commissioners, signed on to a local public official's statement on the reversal of Roe v. Wade. In response to the devastating and harmful decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, the undersigned public officials in Bloomington, Monroe County, and township government stand together in support of an individual's right to bodily autonomy and reproductive choice. Further. As community leaders in Bloomington, Monroe County, we are proud to fund the health care, child care, and birth control needs of low-income individuals and families through multiple local grant programs and township assistance. We stand with Planned Parenthood and the All Options Pregnancy Center as they meet the reproductive health care needs of the most vulnerable in our community. We call upon state legislators in Indiana to exercise reason and respect, and to protect individuals' rights to make their own health care decisions in consultation with their own health care providers. We object to any legislative course of action that further erodes a person's right to choose. Thoughtful compassion is the foundation of any just and equitable community. As public officials, it is our responsibility to speak out when we see rights stripped away from our residents, and it is our obligation to oppose decisions that will cause unjust hardship and increased poverty for those that we represent. We object to any civil or human right being taken away by activists on the U.S. Supreme Court and to any legislative action that undermines the well-being of our residents or those of the state of Indiana. The commissioners shared a proclamation about the LGBTQ plus rights movement. Commissioner Penny Givens said that from now on, June 28th will be recognized as Pride Day in Monroe County. And in support of Pride Month, we have flown the Pride flag throughout the month of June at the Monroe County Courthouse. As we say every week in our opening statement, we affirm the right of every resident of Monroe County to live peacefully and without fear. Now, therefore, we, the Monroe County Commissioners, claim June 28th, 2022 as Pride Day. Thomas also shared a proclamation making June 29th, 2022 as Eric Evans Day in honor of Director of Technical Services Eric Evans, who is leaving his position. According to Givens, Evans was hired in 2013 and helped the county get through a variety of obstacles. 
In his tenure as the director, Eric raised the standard for the county's technology. And Eric oversaw the migration of data to the cloud, guided the creation of our new website and provided vital support in the creation of the OpenGov system for the planning, building and health departments. He led the technical services department and Monroe County through power outages, cut cables, server issues, email spam, a flood and a pandemic. Commissioner Lee Jones said that Evans was an integral part of the switch to the Zoom meetings to keep county business going during the pandemic. Yes, and I'd like to add that not all county employees and elected officials were easy to get participating on Zoom. (laughs) And I was certainly one of those. And (laughs) Eric was very, very patient and went quite a ways out of his way to help me be able to continue to participate in our meetings. Next, the commissioners approved a request from the Parks Board to fund a Painting in Nature program. Assistant Director of Parks and Recreation John Robertson presented the agreement with Sarah Erickson. Um, So these programs will consist of a 30-minute environmental education activity to begin, and then will be followed by the painting, which will take around an hour and a half. Um, The first event is scheduled at Will Detmer Park on July 16th for anybody that's interested in attending. Um, And then there will be a registration fee for for $10. Um, It should be noted on the agreement that the amount is not to exceed $290. That's actually for both programs. So each one will be $145. I myself am not a great painter, but I have no doubt that this will be a popular activity. Commissioner Jones asked if there would be an age limit on the program. Robertson said that it would be open to everyone. The commissioners approved the funding unanimously. The next commissioner's meeting will be held on July 6th. The Bloomington Historic Preservation Commission meeting on June 30th, Historic Preservation Program Manager Gloria Colomb Branya presented a petition to move the house located at 701 West 4th Street in the Greater Prospect Hill Historic District. Branya shared that the petitioner, Peter Haralovich, wants to move the house to the back of the property and to construct a new house in its place. This is the current house and its location. It is much more set back than its neighbors along the street, kind of in the middle of the lot. The proposal calls for it to be moved from the middle of the lot to the back of the lot. And this is a proposal for the new facade. Sorry, sorry, not facade, for the new construction. And this is how the layout would look. So staff, all that said, staff recommends approval of COA 22-44. And I also wanted to comment as staff that this has been an ongoing conversation for many months with the owner trying to find multiple solutions to the dilemma of being able to expand his house and live in a comfortable way. Branya commented that this is a solution that they have come to after many months of discussion. Harlovich explained what his goals are for the house and the property. I, uh, I did a lot of investigating about how I might add on to it or 
you know, some of them created space uh, for dwelling, and uh, I just couldn't get it to pencil out. Uh, anesthetically, it didn't work. And so I thought the better solution would be to, you know, uh, kind of save it as an art object and put it in the district where it can remain and be as it is and as it was originally constructed and remain there. So from the exterior, it'll, it'll look what it looks like now. And then the, the house in the front, I'm trying to adapt uh, to the neighborhood. So, so that's my goal is to yeah, try to keep this thing preserved, this thing preserved at the same time, uh, create uh, another prop, another building that fits the neighborhood and, uh, and allows me to, uh, to reside there and age in place. So I, my goal is I want to, uh, I want to live in the neighborhood. The commission voted to approve the petition unanimously. The next meeting will be held on July 14th. Up next, we have an excerpt from KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs Friday at 5.30 on WFHB. The program is available online at WFHB.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We turn now to a roundup of prison disturbances as compiled by the Perilous Chronicle. There has been much media attention around the escape of Gonzalo Lopez near Centerville, Texas. Lopez escaped while being transported by bus from the Alfred D. Hughes unit in Gatesville for a medical appointment. His escape sparked one of the largest search efforts for an escaped inmate in Texas history, lasting over three weeks and resulting in his death by the police. Lopez was accused of killing five people during his escape. While Perilous does not track individual escapes or escape attempts, Texas Senator John Whitmere reported that during Lopez's takeover of the prison bus, other prisoners created a distraction by singing and jumping up and down as Lopez freed himself and attacked a guard. Officials claim that 16 other prisoners knew of his attempt to escape and aided in it. On May 30th, around 1 p.m., Two prisoners detained at the Acadiana Center for Youth in Bunky, Louisiana, escaped from the facility. No further details have been provided, and there has been no information about their recapture. As Perilous will expand later regarding the uprising at the Bridge City Center for Youth, there have been numerous escapes and disturbances at juvenile detention centers in Louisiana in the past few years, including an escape in February of 2022. Two detainees at Clearfield County Jail in Clearfield, Pennsylvania, escaped from a work crew while cutting grass. According to reports, they took off their uniforms and left. One prisoner was recaptured on June 17th. The other prisoner was recaptured on Sunday, June 26th in Lawrence Township. The two others were arrested and charged for, quote unquote, hindering apprehension. On the evening of June 2nd, three prisoners held at Barry County Jail in Cassville, Missouri, escaped by cutting a hole in the ceiling into a water heater storage room and breaking through an exit door. Their escape wasn't discovered until the next morning. 
One prisoner was recaptured on June 8th in Casper, Wyoming. Another prisoner was recaptured on June 13th in Springfield, Missouri. The final prisoner was recaptured on June 14th in San Antonio, Texas. All three prisoners have been charged with one count of escape. The sheriff of Barry County Jail said that staff shortages contributed to prisoners being able to escape. Only two guards were working at the facility during the escape. On the evening of June 4th, five prisoners escaped from the Star Community Justice Center in Franklin Furnace, Ohio. According to reports, the prisoners escaped through a fence at the facility. Allegedly, one of the prisoners' fiancé and her ex-husband assisted in the escape by throwing bolt cutters over the fence to allow the prisoners to cut through it and escape. They've both been arrested and charged with assisting in the escape. Two prisoners were recaptured that evening in the surrounding area. Two other prisoners were recaptured in nearby Wheelersburg, Ohio, the following day. The last prisoner was recaptured in Brown County, Ohio. The date of recapture is unknown, but he was held at the Clinton County Jail starting June 11th. At Hogan Street Regional Youth Center, where many other juveniles have escaped this year, three more teens escaped on June 5th. The teens lured an employee into a bathroom, assaulted him, took his keys, and locked him inside the bathroom before breaking a window and escaping together. One of the three have been rearrested. No other details regarding the rearrest of the others is available. On June 6th, two prisoners walked out of the Federal Correctional Institution satellite camp in Millington, Tennessee. The men may have escaped several hours before authorities reported them missing at about 5 p.m. on June 6th. As of June 27th, the two men have not been rearrested. Two women assaulted a detention deputy during an escape attempt at Hillsborough County Jail in Tampa, Florida on June 7th. The women feigned sickness in order to lure the deputy into a bathroom where they placed a pillowcase over her head and forcibly tried to take the keys to their unit. Other prisoners and staff intervened in the assault and prevented the escape. The two women are now facing additional charges. At least 16 prisoners being held in solitary confinement at the State Correctional Institution Green in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, began a hunger strike on June 7th. Three prisoners are still striking, according to the Corrections Department. These prisoners will continue the strike until Pennsylvania Department of Corrections offers them a pathway out of solitary confinement. In today's feature report, Big Talk producer Michael Glab speaks with IU Cinema director Alicia Cosma. Big Talk is a public affairs program featuring interviews with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. The program airs at 5.30 each Thursday and again on Friday at 11.30 on WFHB. We turn now to an excerpt from Glab's interview with IU Cinema director Alicia Cosmo. She's the director of the IU Cinema, meaning she loves movies. Her name, Alicia Cosma. Alicia, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I'm excited to be here today. Oh, great. So you arrived late last year because you got the gig as the director here. Where did you come from? So I came from Washington College. It's a small liberal arts school on the eastern shore of Maryland. 
And I was the chair of the communication and media studies program there. Well, that's the kind of thing you've been studying pretty much all your late teen and adult life is communications and media, no? Absolutely. A lot of your research has had to do with labor in the media, the people who actually work in media. I, as you said, a lot of my research does focus on the labor of making media. More often than not, it focuses on women's labor in making media. But one of the things that has always interested me is the idea of, quote, movie magic, the sense that movies just appear magically on our home television screen, in our theaters, on, you know, tiny screens in front of us, on planes. And we're never taught really about all the work, all the creativity, all the labor, all the craft, all the professionalism that goes into making film. And as a result, we tend to think like popularly of film as, you know, the genius work of one or two individual people that just springs forth fully formed from someone's head, you know, and the actors on the screen and the actors on the screen. Right. And that ends up entertaining us. But film is one of the most collaborative art forms you have. And that's what makes it so interesting to me is that hundreds of people make a movie. But we never talk about those hundreds of people. We never talk about all the work that goes into something. And for me, really being able to articulate all the work in all the different ways that people can contribute to the film industry, it makes actually working in the film industry much more accessible, right? There's only a certain number of film directors that are ever going to exist in the world. There's only one director on a film. You know, there's only a certain number of actors that are ever going to be in a movie. But for people who are invested in contributing to film and to film culture, there are a myriad of ways to do that because hundreds of people work together to make a film. And so for me, talking about the issues around media labor and around who is actually putting together these wonderful things that we're engaging with is a way of making this industry more accessible to more people and a much more kind of broad roster of people who get to work in film because once we know what it takes to put a film together we can find our own paths into the movie making industry which for many people particularly many young people who are really invested in film it can be super overwhelming to say well i'm going to grow up and be a director i mean cool there's like 200 directors in the world right (laughs) you know it's a pretty small you're the odds are pretty small if you want to be working in the industry and like you know, as a professional who's making a living doing this, that doesn't mean there aren't just a zillion other ways to contribute creatively. Have you ever worked on a movie? I've done a little bit. And it's been on Friends Productions. It's really just been as as helping out. I can admit this now. I couldn't when I was like much younger. I'm really good at explaining things. I'm really good at teaching things. I'm not great with my hands. The process, <laughs> the process of translating the ideas or the vision into the practical thing, into the craft, it's just not my skill set. In fact, I remember when I was an undergraduate student, we had to take a production class, which anyone who's interested in film should know the critical side, the historical side, and the practical side. So I was right. so thankful that we had to take the production class. I worked with a friend and I would explain to him exactly what I thought the thing should look like. 
and then he would actually be able to materialize it on screen. Uh-huh. I just am missing that little part in between. <laughs> well, you, that means you have to work with other people. And as you say, this is a collaborative endeavor. Absolutely. Speaking of the people who work on movies, do women get a fair shake? Do they get jobs? Do they get paid? No. I mean, I wish I had a better answer for you, but no, they really don't. Even today? Yeah, unfortunately, even today. So much of the employment system in Hollywood is really set up to exclude rather than include. And these employment structures and hiring structures have just been built up over time to a a place where it's really, really difficult for women to not just succeed in the way that they want to in the film industry, but just have basic employment that can pay their bills and put a roof over their head, you know, and buy groceries. It is still exceedingly rare. We tend to talk about women's employment in the film industry, like when we think about directors, because directors are the most high profile, really, besides actors, they're the most high profile position in the film industry. Everyone knows what a film director does, even if they don't really know what a film director does. Yeah. You know, women still only make up like 4% of of film directors. Just 4%. Just 4%. And if you're talking about women of color, that's 2%. But if you, dr- if you drill down even deeper, cinematographers, women are 2% of cinematographers. They're like tenths of percentage of people who work on special effects. So a huge variety of occupations in the film industry, women want to work in them. It's not just the quote unquote high profile positions like writer or director. And I'm know. willing to bet that the vast majority of positions in the craft unions are male. Yes, certainly. Unless you're talking about craft unions that are seen as like, quote unquote, traditionally feminine, like costuming and hair and makeup. But if you're talking about, you know, craft services like electricians, stunts, special effects, they're overwhelmingly male. In some cases, certainly in, in the special effects world, it wasn't until recently that there was even enough women to be like measured in a statistically relevant way. And it's not because women don't want these jobs. They absolutely do. They are training. They are working. They are they are trying to make it, you know, in the system. But there are so many barriers that oh. have just compounded over time that make it just difficult for them to get their foot in the door. Because the way Hollywood works, for the most part, is that to get a to get a job, you need to know somebody who you worked with uh-huh. on a previous on a previous job. Right. <laughs> So, so how about the person who has no previous job? That's it. So it's it becomes a real it becomes a real catch a real catch 22. Up next, WFHB sports correspondent Onyi Afoako provides a rundown on local, state and global news stories in the WFHB sports news briefing. We turn to our sports correspondent for more.
From WFHB, this is your sports news briefing. I'm Oni Afuaku. Caleb Biggie Swanigan, one of the most heralded players in the history of Purdue's basketball program, has died. Swanigan was 25. According to the Allen County Coroner's Office, Swanigan died of natural causes. In his high school days, Swanigan was a star for the Homestead High School Spartans in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He averaged 22.6 points and 13.7 rebounds his senior year. He scored 20 points, nabbed 14 rebounds, and had six assists to lead his team past Evansville Wrights in the 2015 Class 4A state championship game. He would then be named the 2015 Indy Star Mr. Basketball. He then played two years at Purdue University where he was named Big Ten Player of the Year as a sophomore. The Portland Trailblazers picked him 26th overall in the 2017 NBA Draft. He appeared in 75 games over three seasons with Portland and the Sacramento Kings. A childhood friend said of Swanigan, quote, he was a gentle giant, not because of his height, but because his heart was so big. Indiana University Athletics announced a renovation of the Women's Basketball Team Center in Simon Scott Assembly Hall is currently underway. The project is being funded by the Women's Excellence Initiative, an initiative dedicated to enhancing IU's 13 women's varsity programs. The renovation of the game day locker room located in the northwest corner of Assembly Hall is thought to be crucial in keeping the Hoosiers at the top of the Big Ten standings. The completion of the project is supposed to assist with recruiting efforts while also providing student athletes with game day space on the level of other top 25 caliber programs. This space will include a locker room, team lounge, training room, and coaches meeting room. More than four months after Brittany Griner was arrested at a Moscow airport for alleged cannabis possession, the criminal trial of the American basketball star began Friday, July 1st, per the order of a Russian court. The Phoenix Mercury star has been ordered to remain in custody for the duration of her criminal trial. She could face up to 10 years in prison if convicted of large-scale transportation of drugs. Less than 1% of defendants in Russian criminal cases are acquitted. Unlike in the U.S., acquittals can be overturned. On Monday, the court in the Moscow suburb of Kimki extended Griner's detention another six months until December 20th, during a preliminary hearing that was closed to the media. Sources say that Russia is willing to negotiate her release and the legal proceedings are mainly to add legitimacy to what is otherwise considered a farce orchestrated to gain leverage in U.S.-Russian diplomacy. That's all for your sports news briefing. For WFHB, I'm Onyi Afwaka.
Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. KiteLine is produced by Mia Beach. Our feature was produced by Michael Glab. The WFHB Sports News Briefing was produced by Anya Afawako. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Cynthia Roberts. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.